Uh, if you had to, how would you summarize your life in one sentence? You know, when I read that question before, I think it's hard to of course. summarize my life. <laughs> I've lived many lives, <laughs> you know. I've had many jobs, many lives, uh, you know, different countries, different places that I've lived in. It's hard to summarize it all in one uh, thing, you know. And and who knows, I mean, how it ends, right? Uh, or how much am I able to achieve before it ends? So, yeah, it'll all depend on, you know, what I leave behind, uh, you know, what purpose I serve before I go. So we'll see. It's an incomplete sentence, I guess. <laughs> well, it's a sentence, and I think it says something. It also, I think, reflects a little bit about some questions I have about uh, the nature of photography and these uh, yeah, expressions of single images to describe life, etc. Uh... My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode of My Viewfinder is brought to you by your friends at Telus Story Hive. Since 2013, Telus Story Hive has funded productions and supported emerging filmmakers with mentorship and guidance from the National Screen Institute. The Story Hive program has brought hundreds of films to life from creators in Western Canada. Story Hive is committed to supporting underrepresented filmmakers and stories, which is why we want you to jump on this opportunity. Story Hive's documentary edition is back, and this one is all about local heroes. They're looking for documentary pitches from Alberta residents that highlight extraordinary citizens in your community, big or small. Successful pitches will receive $20,000 and customized mentorship to produce their project. Applications are open until October 7th at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. For eligibility requirements and to apply now, head to storyhive.com. As part of the inaugural Exposure Studio event, I had the opportunity to meet a wide variety of artists here in Calgary. While I don't necessarily want to keep my focus here, I have to start seeding these concepts somewhere, and where better than in our own backyard. Interestingly, my guest today is a woman from outside of the city. In fact, a woman who has touched soil around the world and brings this worldview to us. She has been developing a voice through her work. But in particular, in our conversation, I was inspired to keep in mind that we live in small boxes, and the path to spiritual growth exists outside of those boxes. Going out and interacting with people out there is how we can keep evolving in here. I'm not sure if this makes any sense anymore, but let's just get to the top and see what your opinion is. Here's my chat with Twinkle Banerjee, photographer and all-around awesome person. Perhaps, you know, if we could start, uh, you know, where you come from and how you found photography and then, uh, um, you know, I don't know, give me an idea of uh, some of these evolutions that have taken place and, and all of these worldviews that uh, are bringing you here uh, to who you are today. Yeah, um, you know, I grew up in India and uh, grew up mostly with my maternal family, so my I used to, you know, I grew up with my grandparents and my uncle and uh, my uncle had a job that was constantly making him move. He used to work for the government, uh, constantly moving from one place to another, sometimes in just two months, sometimes in six months. So even within India, I had the, you know, uh, I had uh, the advantage of getting to see different states. Uh, we call them states, they're not provinces, but, you know, getting to see different states, uh, getting to see different culture growing up. Um, so, you know, I never really felt like I belonged to any um, single place in India. 
it was funny people would you know even in india people would say where are you originally from and i would always say well i'm from here but i lived all over you know it was always that uh and it didn't change much when i uh, moved to canada as well but yeah so there was you know i was constantly uh, traveling uh you know from the very beginning of my life and in those days there was no facebook or anything so you know it was very hard to forge connections that stayed with you for a long time you were just traveling you lost connection it was very heartbreaking as a child but you know i think going up then i learned to just you know i mean constantly travel and i loved just being you know part of different cultures learning different things i could never fit in one place for too long i never liked being in one place for too long it just made me very agitated and insecure uh and so yeah that is how things happen and then eventually you know uh, obviously I moved to canada and i've been here for 10 years now a uh, majority of it has been spent in calgary you know so going through this i i think it's fascinating the idea of uh you know being i i think not that i've been to india but the uh the scale of uh mm-hmm. asia and what that <laughs> might mean it's not like here where you drive 5 hours to see another human being uh Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other thing I think that's often lost with, with China and India is that they're not necessarily homogenous peoples because, uh, as you call them, states. There are so many cultures and languages that are alive uh, within these countries. Um, it's it's an amazing starting point, I think. Although you know, moving around has its disadvantages, I guess, too socially. But um, yeah, but you learn a lot, you know, you learn to assimilate in different cultures very quickly, um, you learn languages, you learn people's skills, and especially if you're doing that at a very young age, you kind of learn those things very early on, you know, how do you fit in, if you're going from one school to another school, how quickly can you get in and assimilate between different people, you learn different languages, so you, you know, you automatically have this uh, handle in society. You know, you're speaking language, and because you're so young, you you learn language at an age where you know you you speak it just like the local people, right? You might get made fun of for the first two weeks because you're you know rolling your R a little different, but you're you're picking it up quickly. You're picking the accents, the local accents quickly. So yeah, you learn a lot of. I mean, I you know I wouldn't have it any other way. It was painful when it did. You know, uh, I never learned how people just live in one place for all of their life. Like I just don't get it. Uh, but you know, when it happened, it was painful. But I am very thankful for it. It has helped me now when I travel or anything like to, you know, I just don't. I mean, I'm never scared when I'm traveling. I could be in any country. I wouldn't know any ABCD of the language, uh, and I would be fine because in India, I had to even do my degree in South India and in Tamil Nadu, and I like that language is utterly different from Hindi. It's a completely different language, completely different culture from. Uh, from you know uh, where I spent majority of my life, my uh, life in uh, majority of my life was in North North India, uh, you know, and I'm from Bengal, which is East India, but I went to study in Chennai, which is utter south, and the language, the culture, everything is different, uh, you know. So um, yeah, like just being there at a young age, not knowing the language, uh, and then having to not only graduate but I also worked there. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm so used to not going to any place. And if you put me and I don't understand the language, I'll be like, well, that's fine. Cause I did it when I was 16, you know, I can do it much better now. So yeah, you know, the scope of India. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's also where a lot of my frustration lies, I guess that living here, how do you explain it to somebody, you know, 
a lot of the time if I say I'm from India and this is a running joke between me and my other Indian friend is that you know the moment you say you're you're from India the two things people will say oh you know you're from India I love butter chicken or they'll say <laughs> Oh yeah, I've watched Slumdog Millionaire. I would, you know, I I would want to go there, but I also don't want to deal with poverty. Those are the only two things that come out of people's mouth and it's like, well, thank you for reducing my, you know, thousands of year old civilization and culture and and you know, a subcontinent into a, a single dish of butter chicken, but uh, you know, there's uh, the scope is insane. I mean, when we live in India, we look at we look at each state as a different country. You know, it's it's more uh, diverse than obviously Europe is and bigger than Europe. Uh, but yeah, each state has the language and it's, it's insanity. I mean, to, uh, you know, the, the inter-racism that we have, you know, or the languages and the culture, like it's so different to navigate through them. And a lot of the Indian, a lot of Indians, they themselves have not traveled all of the breadth of the continent. Right now it's becoming a big thing among, you know, youngsters, uh, they're traveling quite a bit. Uh, but, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't a big thing, especially if you were a woman, you weren't traveling that, mu that much within India. So a lot of the time, I mean, people just didn't know the other culture as much because they didn't even, you know, they never went there. Uh, but now there has been a trend where people are, you know, starting to travel a lot more, which is good. Uh, but yeah, the, the, you have to be there to know it and you have to essentially at least spend a year and a half there traveling to even, you know, scratch the surface to even understand the 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 wide range of offering that is there. Um, it's one of those things that I've uh, noticed too when I travel you get this sense you know, that you can't even exactly scratch the surface at all when you're there for a few days, a week or two. Um, so uh, how does photography enter your life here? Is it something that's been a part of uh, this whole growing up process or does it uh, come in after you're working um, wh where does the camera start into your life yeah it's funny growing up uh, my family never had a camera there was always a story with the camera either it got lost or you know it didn't work and I remember we would go on all these trips and my granddad would you know uh, will bring a camera let's say we would you know bring it from somewhere um, we would you know uh, borrow it from somebody or our own camera and assure you like there was always some issue with it and it wouldn't work and we had such bad luck with photos uh you know we'll go for these trips to the mountain or whatever and we'll come back with no photo <laughs> so there was always this frustration with my family uh you know i think they're all given up on photography and uh, and anyway so eventually when i grew up and you know i moved to canada uh, but before moving to Canada, I was working, uh, you know, a weird job. I was in a ship, um, but I had I had a friend, and at that time I wasn't dating him, but I had a friend, and he had taken so many photos throughout the years. He was a good photographer, and most of his photography was in travel. And I, um, you know, every time I would see his photos, it just brought me so much joy. Like I would just look at his photos and feel like I was in that place in that moment. Uh, you know, he was able to do that really well. So, you know, seeing his work always brought me so much joy and that kind of motivated me initially, I would say. Uh, and, you know, I also wanted to get a camera and, you know, do travel photos like that. So when I moved to Canada, eventually, um, I had a point and shoot before that, but then I bought a, you know, DSLR camera. And, um, you know, I was the crappiest photographer you can find, uh, you know, just putting things on auto mode. I had no idea of, you know, where to go to learn the DSLR camera that I bought was very intimidating. So I was just a very, very amateur photographer and I would just put it on auto uh, and just go out and start taking photos in, in Calgary. 
so that's how it started. Um, you know, it definitely helped me some days cope with, you know, the, the loneliness of being in Canada and very new to Canada. It definitely helped me with that. But, you know, it was funny because the day I brought my camera, all my traveling stopped <laughs> and I had brought it for, you know, traveling, for, for, for taking travel photos. But it was funny the day I brought it, you know, I was stuck in Canada going through my immigration process and I wasn't traveling at all. So it was just lying there. And I honestly did not use it that much. Um, like I said, it was for a very, you know, amateur kind of a photography situation. Uh, so it just lies there for years. I mean, I bought I bought my first DSLR camera in 2012. Uh, and honestly, I was just not taking any photos uh, until I migrate. You know, I got my residency and I was able to travel again. Uh, and then, yeah, eventually, you know, as I started traveling, I would take my camera with me, you know, uh, take photos, come back. But again, throughout all of this time, it was always um, auto mode and just taking digital photos, coming back, you know, looking at them. I was getting better, but, you know, nothing, uh, you know, nothing outrageously good. Uh, not that I'm any good today, but, you know, it wasn't it wasn't where I wanted it to be. It was just very automatic. You know, I was just pressing kind of the shutter button. There was no work. I wasn't putting anything to it. And then this, you know, happened for a few years until uh, two, three years ago when I said, you know, enough is enough. Like I, I, the camera was super heavy. I was done with it. So I decided to sell the camera. And during this time, I'd also brought a Pentax, you know, analog camera from eBay because I wanted to do both for the longest time. Uh, I've always been a fan of black and white more than color growing up. So I wanted to, you know, just do true black and white and just go back to analog. So I bought my Pentax camera, sold my DSLR, you know, said goodbye to it. And then for the last two, three years, I only did analog, you know, uh, and that helped me learn a lot, you know, at least the, the process of it, the technicalities of things. It helped me learn, uh, you know, I, I, told myself I'm going to finally put time into learning photography properly so I shut off everything I, I shut off Flickr I shut off any digital you know noise because um, you, you know you, you, do, you do get motivated even if you don't want to it does impact you in some way or the other and you start to kind of sometimes make what you see and I didn't want to be impacted by that so I completely cut off uh, everything and then you know uh, basically the idea was to go to the library and pick whatever photography book I could find and just read like two books a week, you know, watch more videos. Um, and I think the, the pivotal moment in my life was um, when I started looking at photography differently was that um, one day, I think New York Times, I think published an article, I think, or uh, I don't know which company, but they published an article of Harry Gouer's, uh, you know, work, uh, I think on Soviet Union. He had done this color work. Uh, his book was coming out, I believe. And just going through that article and seeing his work on color and on, you know, how, you know, he could push the limitations of camera to speak a different language. I think that was just, uh, you know, very, it, it was an epiphany for me at that moment. And so, you know, I started looking at photography differently. It told me that there were other ways of doing it. You know, I was just seeing very, uh, you know, very popularized shots on you know, Instagram or Flickr or whatever there was at the time. But, you know, just looking at Harry Gould's work, I think that, I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, but that made me realize that, you know, there was, there was this other world out there. And then obviously from there, I got into Magnum and I started looking at Alex Webb's work. And, you know, things like that definitely challenge your notion. It's almost like you've known all this and now, you know, there's this other world out there. So, yeah, I started focusing on people that I really loved, their color work, 
you know, and then obviously doing my black and white side, side by side. Uh, and then, yeah, that's how, you know, the whole learning process changed. And that's when I started taking photography seriously. Uh, and I wanted to do that kind of work, you know? So I think, yeah, it has definitely evolved, but I'm still in a transition because I just, uh, because of analog, you know, my approach definitely had slowed down quite a bit. Um, uh, once I moved to analog, I was doing things much slowly, uh, you know, between film and resource and how much money you have to spend and, you know, getting it developed and scanning, that is another pain. And so doing all of that just slowed it down. And it, it helped me kind of look at photography differently rather than, you know, doing 20,000 shots. I was taking maybe very few, but focusing on that one shot. So brought in more meditative sort of an approach to photography. But yeah, so, you know, all of that got together. And so, yeah, it slowed it down. It helped me learn things, you know, technical things a lot better. And then, you know, recently now I've switched back to digital, which is helping me make more projects much quicker because it's digital. I don't have to worry about film and scanning and all that. Uh, so yeah, finally I moved back to digital, but again, keeping film, you know, as well on the side. The word that comes to mind listening to you is uh, intentionality. I mean, the idea that when you make, uh, I mean, your history growing up, studying different languages, assimilating into cultures, uh, there's that going and studying uh, uh you know your final thing is starting uh work in southern uh, india you said is a completely different language uh, to be able to survive in that environment is fascinating um and then you know when you make the decision to learn the camera <laughs> reading two books a week finding inspiring work uh, and then of course i mean i i don't shoot analog but the the intentionality of uh i mean never mind the cost uh even just having, you know, 30, whatever it is, uh, frames to work with. Yeah, it just changes uh, changes the sense of the moment, I think. Um, it's fascinating when I speak with uh, friends who shoot film, uh, when they're not being too puritanical about it. Uh, there's, uh, yeah, they approach the craft in a very yeah, intentional, technical, and uh, immersed way. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to hear. I I think it's fascinating the uh, different approaches people have to getting into this craft. Uh, so you know, with that in mind, um, we are we've met through the Exposure Studio uh, project. Um, but one of the themes that seems to come up a lot is this idea of um, uh, bias and this. I mean, you brought up uh, your friend. I think you said you were working on a ship, like a boat, a ship. Yes. Yeah, I was working on a, it wasn't a cruise ship, but a residential ship, yeah, where people lived. Uh, that's fascinating. If we have time, we'll come back and you can teach me what a residential ship is. But do you have an idea of this this role that the camera and photography play in bias and culture? Um, you know, I mean, when we talk about bias... Um, I have thought about it a lot, actually, uh, and something that sometimes actually makes me angry. <laughs> you get a lot of anger when I talk. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it can be frustrating. You know, I, and I can speak for myself uh, looking at my own background. I think growing up in India, you know, I love Steve McCree's work. And, you know, obviously there were other um, big players in the industry that had gone to India and taken photos uh, from Andre Cartier Bresson to, you know, uh, Steve McCree and everybody else in between. But, you know, what happened was, obviously India was going through a horrible time after the British left, uh, after the independence. Uh, 
it was left with, you know, no constitution, no structure, nothing. And overnight things changed. There were, you know, I mean, there was obviously famine when Churchill was responsible for it. Like there was a huge famine before that. But, you know, there was there, there were famines happening. You know, India was going through division. There was, you know, India-Pakistan that got divided in the 1970s. Um, you know, Bangladesh, uh, which was, you know, East um, Pakistan at the time, that uh, again had a war with India and there was, there was mass migration of people. And, you know, there were obviously amazing photographers that went to India and did that kind of work. And eventually, you know, uh, Steve McCray came and he did amazing color work in India as well. But what later on that led to, and I'm nobody to say this because, you know, I mean, they're great masters, but I think what eventually led to, to was that um, people thought of India in a very certain way. Uh, and, you know, it's funny because when those photos were taken, the condition in India was like that and they were kind of reflecting on the time. But eventually what that led to was this very, you know, set notion about India. It was either very colorful or, you know, very exotic or, you know, very impoverished. There were all these notions that got set up about India. And, you know, that led to even Indians who were taking photos of, of that and kind of confirming that notion as well over and over because that was the thing to do. That became the new trend. And so, you know, when I was um, kind of getting into photography or even before that, just going to National Geographic magazines or anything else, you would constantly come across these photos that confirm that notion. And it kind of, you know, got a little bit frustrating. I mean, you know, I don't want to hide the issues that India has, but there is a way to tell a story rather than just looking at, you know, this is how it is. Uh, you know, those are, again, bigger conversations. I'm sure it cannot be, you know, dealt with in an hour, but, you know, there has to be a maturity in telling a story. And if it's just a picture uh, with no background, why things are that way, you know, I don't think it pain, paints the right picture. I don't think it gives people the in-depth understanding of the situation. Uh, and, you know, I might be blabbering through this because I haven't thought this through myself, but, you know, recently, I've seen there's a new kind of a trend where, um, you know, there was that very colorful exoticism of India or very, you know, a lot of poverty of India. And now there's this like, um, you know, photos that I see in, in Vogue, Italia, you know, the, the thing that they do, the forum that they have. Um, I almost know before somebody even posts that photo that that will get selected because it, it is again a different kind of an exo exoticism. I don't know what that is, but it's it, you can almost tell like that's the new trend now. And you know, if if there is a woman in sari in a specific way, uh, you know, those photos will get picked up very quickly. And I feel like between these two extremes, um, what has gotten lost is the story of just regular people. You know, I've always said this to my other friends. You know, it can be very frustrating when you go to Hollywood and the only movies that you see of India are magic realism, you know, whether it's Life of Pi or, you know, Mistress of Spices, like everything is about magic realism. And it's like, okay, well, India has spiritualism and, you know, yoga and all that came from India, but people are very, you know, pragmatic there. Like people deal with their day-to-day -day lives very normally, just like anybody else would. And nobody is, you know, talking about those stories, even in photography. And I think, you know, that can, you know, I think that bias has, you know, always bothered me and recently it has started to bother me even more because I'm seeing this new trend. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as, as I have gotten mature in my own photography, I think it's become important to tell all sides of the story. Obviously, when I was doing travel photography, it was just, you know, showing the best of that country. Uh, but even with traveling alone, it has changed too. Like my perspective of, you know, when I go to a country, I just don't want to see, you know, all the touristy places and all the good stuff. I want to see everything that, that it comes with. 
Um, so I think, yeah, I, reflecting, you know, in my own work, I haven't done any serious work so far. Um, but, you know, if I was to go back to India and tell some stories, I, I do want to try my best to, you know, bring in justice instead of making it look, you know, either too sad or too happy. Like there's always that medium and balance that we have to look for. It's, you know, easier said than done. But yeah, I mean, you always have to be consciously aware of the story you're trying to tell and, you know, trying to do it justice without a bias. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I haven't gone to that point where, you know, I've gone back and created good work. But uh, when I do, hopefully, uh, you know, who knows? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I mean I've, I've just been introduced to you through this thing and I just found your feed, but I do love your photography. I think this idea of uh, phrasing it in, in a sort of self-critical way is also dangerous. I, the, the thing for me about bias is there's also this pull within each of us um, that we're supposed to be doing something maybe very broad, <laughs> very like impactful that might help change the world. Um, and I, I, I'm also caught on that. I mean, there's a part of me, you know, I, I've been in addiction recovery. I've been around uh, this thing. I have uh, this identity crisis being, uh, I was born in Toronto, but my parents are Korean. And uh, as you describe um, the historical setting of, uh, you know, where India was uh, and where it is now, uh, I've just been, I mean, I've known about it, but I've just been researching the true, I suppose, data, at least as it's been presented to world history about the Korean War that my parents uh, grew up in. And uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about. I, uh, I don't know them at all uh, or their experiences, et cetera. But I also don't know what it's like to be, um, you know, generational white Canadian person, uh, despite being a Canadian person. So um, those things are always going to influence and give us tension, I think. And I, it's a hard thing to know what you're supposed to do next. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and unless you are there, you know, I mean, that's my thing. Uh, you know, ideally the goal would be to go back and do some good work. Uh, now, India is fascinating in a, in a way that right now a lot of the things that um you know were commonplace uh even when i was growing up or 10 15 years ago are kind of disappearing now you know a lot of the um art and culture that exists in folk uh you know communities or indigenous communities um it's disappearing very very rapidly and you know when we talk about climate change overall we're thinking about you know the arctic and everything else uh, and, and the weather patterns but you know even culture i mean it can be impacted hugely uh you know i've started looking into researching this recently and you know i was talking about sundarban which is the delta of the ganges and sundarban had a huge indigenous population uh but you know it was in the Gan- in, in the ganges delta so as with climate change rising sea levels flash floods um, you know, they're, they're kind of part of their land that they used to own to do agriculture is also kind of uh, washing away slowly, you know, and uh, because of other, you know, climatic uh, extreme situations, they're not able to, um, you know, grow as much as they could before. And their life has always been hard because of cyclones or whatever, because of the location that they're in. But, you know, I recently found out that a lot of these people actually migrate to you know, cities like Delhi, the capital of India, like New Delhi and stuff, and and they take like day jobs, you know, uh, really uh, the jobs that nobody else wants to do, you know, whether it's cleaning a sewage, you know, um, uh, manhole or working in somebody's house as a, as a daily, 
uh, you know, as, as a servant or, um, you know, help. Um, and, you know, I mean, can you imagine the culture that is now shifting? Like all these people that are now becoming daily wage earners, uh, they are leaving that culture behind. You know, they're not taking it with them because they are there to work and make money. And so when you think of the impact of overall, you know, climate, you, you are also thinking of, you know, you know, diminishing cultures and things like that. So, you know, ideally my idea is to go back to India and, you know, just kind of document that life that is kind of diminishing each day or the, the way of life or the different little, you know, traditions and things we had growing up that might not exist uh, because of, you know, severe uh, westernization and because of, you know, obviously internet and digital media. I mean, you know, when I went to India last uh, year and a half ago, it was after four years. And before that, it was, you know, only once uh, in the last 10 years. And I mean, I saw very rapid change in India. Uh, it's a good thing. I think, you know, uh, in, a, in a way, internet has given everybody the same platform to learn uh, and to you know, explore their creativity, which is great. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's globalization in a very different scale. It's happening very, very quickly. And so you have people, you know, you had circuses in, in the villages. You would have this massive scale circuses that would go around India that I don't know if it will exist in another 10 years or so or not. Uh, you know, you had these street performances. Um, I don't know if that will exist anymore or not. You know, um, I have seen several interviews with people where these are artists in villages that make, you know, let's say clay pottery or certain kind of pottery or dolls or, you know, they, they tell stories through writing their story, uh, writing poems on leaves, you know, things that seem so ancient, but it happened, uh, you know, until now, but I don't know if it will exist for a very long time, because again, these people are also finding it very hard to survive in the villages because of, you know, massive drought or heat. Uh, they are moving to, you know, they're trying to save up whatever money they can to teach their children so the children can move to the cities and get a job. Uh, there's sometimes mass migration happening from smaller towns to cities. So, you know, there's a lot of culture. We're in a very, um, how do I call it? We're in a transitional point in India. A lot of things might not exist in the next 10 to 15 years. So I think it's a good opportunity now to just go and kind of document that quickly um, before, you know, that happens. And I think that's overall, that would be ideal to go back and tell those stories um, and document those stories. Uh, but we'll see how quickly I can do that, how quickly I can quit my job and go back. This episode was brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.